0: You do a lot more to impact the conversation by listening than you do by talking.
1: That's the voice of John Temperato, president and chief executive officer of Nine Meters Biopharma, headquartered in Raleigh, North Carolina. Listen in now to hear John's thoughts about leadership and how Nine Meters Biopharma is advancing drug candidates for patients with rare and unmet gastrointestinal disorders, including short bowel syndrome and celiac disease. I'm John Cimbley. You're listening to Bioboss. Today, I'm speaking with John Temperado, president and CEO of Nine Meters Biopharma, headquartered in Raleigh, North Carolina. Welcome to Bioboss, John. John,
0: thanks for the opportunity. I appreciate the invitation and look forward to having a chat with you.
1: What led you to the role of president and chief executive officer at Nine Meters Biopharma?
0: John, I've been in the uh, biotech slash pharmaceutical world uh, about 30 years. And at the beginning of my career, um, I really didn't have an aspiration or say to myself, I'm going to be a CEO or I want to be a CEO. I always thought about my career as is the current job. And first of all, you had to execute in your current job is something that's going to lead me to a job I would be more interested in doing and more exciting for me. So that's sort of always the way I've thought about my career. And and, and the nice thing about biotech and pharmaceuticals, it's, it's a if you can't get inspired doing this type of a job or this being in this type of business, I don't know what can inspire you because at the end of the path, you're making a meaningful difference in patients' lives. So that's part of it. And I, I think the, the exciting thing about nine meters, it's a therapeutic category I know exceedingly well. Uh, gastrointestinal diseases um, is a, a therapeutic area I've been in for probably a third to half of my, uh, my career. And uh, uh, it's a nice community. It's a, about 10,000 gastroenterologists, another couple thousand hepatologists. So it's manageable, it's, 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 it's a tight community, and um, I'm excited to have the ability to spend a lot of our career in that therapeutic area.
1: And having had that experience of working for a long period of time in the, in the biopharma industry and having lots of different experiences, what was that process like to decide, okay, that now's the time I want to be the CEO, or now's the right time for me to be the CEO?
0: I think becoming a, a CEO is about opportunity and putting yourself in the right place at the right time and um, making sure that you put yourself in a position where you're able to succeed. So um, so do you have a board that's supportive? Do you have a board that understands exa- and your alignment and support is really, really critical? So I, I think it's a combination of sort of a long and winding road. And then just once you have the opportunity, is it the right fit for you? And are you putting yourself in a supportive uh, situation and an aligned situation?
1: When you had the picture of what it would be like to be leading a biopharma company, and then you stepped in that role and you began to do it. How was that what you thought coming in compared to what it turned out to be?
0: I think the difference in leading a company versus leading a function is when you lead a function, you have to be that content level expert, right? So if you're a CFO, you want to be that content level expert. If you're a chief medical officer, you want to be that content level expert. Same thing, chief commercial officer. When you're the CEO of a company, it's more like um, I don't know if there's a content level expertise for a CEO per se, but I think it's. I tried to describe this to my daughter the other day. It's almost like being a, um, for lack of a better words, a puzzle master. So you want to put the you know make sure the pieces are in the right place. The right people are on the bus. You have the right processes in. You have the right strategy. So you know I don't know more than my CFO about finance. I don't know more than my CMO about drug development, but I think I'm pretty good at um, communicating a vision and getting people to understand how we're going to get there and why we're going to get there. Most importantly, why? Yeah.
1: What were you hoping that you could achieve at Nine Meters Biopharma and maybe not at another company?
0: in bringing nine meters to to, uh uh bringing the company public and then you know now that we've been existed for about seven months and by the way nine meters is the approximate length of the gi tract and speaks to our dedication to the area but i I even wanted to have a, a a clearer and more unwavering commitment and what i mean by that i didn't want to be the the 10th bowel prep or the 20th product for mild to moderate UC in adults we wanted to be more selective so that really was the vision, is really to focus on rare and unmet needs in and GI and, and, bear, and being very selective. I, I think, you know, being the 10th or the, 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 the fifth product in a therapeutic category had its time and place. Um, but I, I think those days are long gone where you're to be the 20th antihistamine and shows a slight, slight reduction in sedation rate versus the next one that's marginal at best. So I, I think the key is being very selective and, and, and trying to make a real difference.
1: When someone who doesn't know you and doesn't know your profession, just you meet them socially perhaps, and they say, John, what do you do for a living? How do you answer?
0: We want the company to be elite without being elitist. So I would never say to somebody, I'm a CEO and president, just not how I'm wired. I would say to somebody, I, I, I work for a biotech company that's focused in the, the GI therapeutic area, and, and uh, we truly are focused on rare and unmet needs. And I would try to talk to them about, well, you know, we, we have two co-lead assets. One's celiac, and pretty much everybody knows what celiac is. You can't go to a supermarket without seeing a gluten-free diet aisle, right? And then uh, then I try to educate them about what short bowel syndrome is and, and what the heck that is and why it's a horrible disease. And the patients. it really is debilitating for patients that suffer for it. Everybody who runs into somebody in our industry should feel first and foremost like we're trying to improve the lives of patients. That's why, you know, like 505B2s aren't interesting to me and – you know, the, the seventh or 20th product in the therapeutic category. I, I just think we, the industry is better when it self-polices itself and truly innovates for the betterment of, of providers, payers, and most importantly, patients.
1: I spoke with, once with a CEO who said, you know, I'm a chief executive officer. Yeah, I have to make the decisions, but I'm also a chief education officer. I spend a lot of my time trying to educate people about the process, the company, the therapeutic condition. I mean, is that, Do you spend much of your time in that realm as well?
0: I I think, as much as you're an educator, you also have to be a listener. I think probably the most important, you know, I learned a long time ago, and I don't know if you control, controlling a conversation is the right way to put it, but um, you do a lot more to to impact the conversation by listening than you do by talking. So, you know, I I try to be a, a really good listener, I try to make sure that everybody is heard. Um, doesn't mean that we're I'm um, going to agree with everybody uh, or that we're going to go down that path, but um, everybody should have the right to be heard. So, you know, a long time ago, somebody told me that you should treat treat feedback like pearls of wisdom, and what you do with those pearls is up to you. So I I tried to do that. You know, I think early in your career, you spend a lot of time as. And maybe this is, uh, I don't know whether it's a youth thing or an inexperienced thing or what it is. But I think early on, especially when you're your first management job or leadership role, you spend a lot of time on the what's. You need to do this. You know, here's the timeline. I have to have this. Um, I think the the more experience you get, hopefully, and this is definitely something I've learned, um, and I, hopefully I did it relatively sooner in my career than, re- than later, is is the whys are the most important thing, so you know you have to spend a lot of time, and everybody should know just not the whats, but the whys, because if people know the whys, then it becomes um, not motivational, inspirational, and you'd always rather inspire somebody than motivate them.
1: When you were of age to be thinking about. You know what interested you at? I don't know, age eight, nine, 10, whatever it might be. Can you remember that far back? Can you remember what it was you thought maybe your parents thought you should do or what you thought you should do in life?
0: Well, there's two things. I was, I played a lawyer in a second grade in play, and my mother, you know, from that day thought I should be a lawyer. Um, I had no interest in ever being a lawyer, so but that was funny. Um, but I remember going to work, my dad was an executive with Colgate Palmolive. and um. Uh, I remember, and uh, so he, the Colgate's offices, if you don't know, are right on Park Avenue, literally right across from the Waldorf Astoria, okay? So I remember going to work with my dad as a, as a, a kid, and I don't know what age I was, whether it was, uh, I think it was probably maybe fifth, sixth, seventh grade, some, somewhere in there. And I got to hang out with the, uh, the uh, advertising department. And, you know, I don't know, this is probably after sort of the Mad Men generation, you know, the, that, but I thought, wow, it would be really cool going into advertising for a large consumer products company and just to create, you know, uh, an ad where people are buying your products because you, 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 you gave them a reason to do so. So I, I thought that'd be cool. So, you know, for a lot of years, I thought I'd just simply go into advertising for a large consumer products company.
1: And then something happened and you fell in love with something else. And can you tell me about that?
0: you graduate college, you look for a job. And then it's actually now my mother going back to my mom who said um, that I should think about um, biotech and, and pharmaceuticals. And, you know, my first job out of college, I got a job with a, with a pharmaceutical company and I carried the bag. So I was a rep calling out physician offices. So uh, I went from that to basically, you know, if you want to move up in a pharmaceutical company, you sort of got to move out and around the country and I don't know how many different roles I've had on the commercial organization and throughout an organization, but it's been many and had a, a bunch of different promotions and been through a lot of M and A's and and uh, uh, but it was a, it was a journey and I wouldn't there there's nothing I would look back and say I wish I would have done it differently um, and I you know, probably the major reason I wouldn't say I would do I wouldn't do any of it differently is because the immense amount of friends. That I've made on my journey along the way, so uh, just, just you know, people that uh, you, you know, when you work with somebody 10, 12 hours a day, it's, 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 it's very uh, emboldening, and you just become lifelong friends. So, it's a, uh, um, uh, yeah, I would I wouldn't, I wouldn't change anything. I love the, the journey.
1: So, in a sense, I'm, I bet you anything that, I've, in a sense. That early interest in advertising carries through in a way every time you have to tell the story to an investor or to somebody, a prospective employee, whatever, because you have to make it come alive for them, right?
0: Yeah, you couldn't be more right. I actually like to present. Um, Not that I like to be in front of people. That's not why I, I truly do like to stand up and watch the lights go off in people's eyes. Um, That's one of I guess think the disadvantages with Zoom or or whatever platform people are using. You know, some people don't have their video on, so you really can't make the connection. And now everybody's wearing a mask, so you can't see anybody smile. (laughs) So that sort of stinks. Um, But we all should be wearing masks. Uh, So uh, uh, no, but you're right. When people truly buy in, they they got the narrative. So the narrative should have a beginning, you know, the middle, the context, and then okay, the whiff and what's in it for them, or what's you know what's it mean to me. So it really does you know, pay off. And it goes back to the why, because you're providing the why in the entire way. So yeah, absolutely couldn't be more right. The best way to get somebody to do something that you would like them to do is to involve them in the story so they can understand the, the full breadth and depth of what you're trying to say.
1: What do you say when people ask, who is Nine Meters Biopharma?
0: The Nine Meters Biopharma is a company that is focused on rare and unmet needs in, in gastroenterology. Uh, mentioned earlier, nine meters is the approximate length of the GI tract, and speaks to our dedication. Uh, when we when we uh, built a company and, and brought it public and changed names, we basically merged three companies together, and then uh, named the the combination of the three companies nine meters. We wanted to to name it, and it was very important to me to name it so that a it spoke to our what we did. You know, I didn't want to be um, Ajax Pharmaceuticals you know, or, or, or bright pharmaceuticals, what's, I don't know what that means. So I wanted somebody to see the name and say, oh, know exactly what they are. The other thing is I wanted somebody to, this, to understand the name and never forget who we are. And, and I think what, because it goes back to the story, right? Because you'll have a lot of people, you know, physicians will get it right away, nine meters, especially our logo, uh, logo has the GI tract, but you get a lot of people say, well, what is nine meters? And then soon as you tell them, they will never forget it. And I learned that lesson a long time ago. I was hiring a, a market research company, and the name of the company was YTNBA. And I said, "Well, what does YTNBA stand for?" And he said, "It was the song that was playing when I met my wife. You took my breath away." Now, honestly, I don't remember if I hired them or did any work, but I remember the name of the company for the rest of my life. So, so that was important. But yeah, rare unmet needs, GI. So that's 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 the goal, and that's the the
1: focus of the company. What you just described to me definitely says this is the space we're in we're in the gi space how would you say you what was your vision what is your vision for nine meters biopharma being different from the other companies that are in the gi space
0: most new companies in biotech are binary they're either binary to a single product or a single platform so it's very important to us to again have that unrelenting unwavering commitment to the strategy uh, so rare and, and unmet, unmet, but also not to be binary. As a new co, you're, you're asking people to invest into your thesis, and they want to return in that thesis. Well, all of us invest our own money into something, but I guarantee you and I don't have 100% of our our investment into one fund or one stock. So, so you try to build a company with that same thing. So that's why we have two co-lead assets, and we actually have a pipeline beyond that. So I think that's really differentiated from especially new companies. And then from the um, the therapeutic space, as I said, rare and unmet. We are going to have an unwavering. I, I don't want to be the, the 20th product for GERD.
1: John, what's new at 9Meters Biopharma?
0: For a company our size, we, we have a, a lot of news flow. And, and when you're putting together a company, one of the things that I learned early on in, in trying to manage a, a, a company is that uh, you want to have news flow, but you don't want to have news flow for news flow's sake. You want to have meaningful news flow. So when we put the company together, so it was not only important that we are focused in binary, but we had a set of a key inflection points um, throughout the year where people can say uh, they are managing the timelines and they're executing against what they said they were going to do. So um, in, a, in a short period of time, although it seems like uh, dog years to me, we uh, have taken institutional ownership from nine to approximately fifty percent, or even north of that. We just did a our second follow-on financing, and that closed uh, uh, in uh, December. So we're very pleased on that because we brought in about eighty to ninety percent institutional uh, investors and another lead investor, which we're very happy that we uh, brought in a very very large hedge fund. So that's new. We, we've, over the last seven months, have had five analysts initiate. I started with zero. So just think about that. I I merged into a public company. And they had zero analysts. So we've had five people um, uh, uh, cover us. They've, they Our consensus is almost 10 to 12 to 15 times where the current stock price is now. So uh, that's encouraging. We said we would initiate a 1B2A trial and complete it. We did that. So the the results of that just came out, and we we saw some uh, very meaningful safety and tolerability results, which that that study was designed to do, and very directionally supportive efficacy results, and that's for our our short bowel program. So we'll be going to the FDA uh, shortly on that. We also recently got orphan drug status for another product in our pipeline for uh, graft-first-host disease.
1: What do people most frequently misunderstand, when they misunderstand, then how do you help them to understand what it is that you're about?
0: Uh, There's two parts to that answer. Um, The first part is is the person who's presenting. So in this case, we're talking about me. And over the last, I don't know, seven months, I, I don't know how many investor presentations I've given, Zooms, hundreds, if not a thousand. So the first thing you really have to focus on is message fatigue. Because I've said it a thousand times, you're hearing it for the first time. So that's the first thing. You've got to focus on yourself to make sure that you're not having message fatigue yourself and just not sort of just, you know, turning that switch or pulling that string like the G.I. Joes when we were little kids. And so making sure that you pause, you listen to the question. So that's the first thing. And then the, the, the second is so we are two co-lead programs. One is a, in phase three for celiac and it's an adjunctive therapy. So um, and it, and what adjunctive therapy means is it's for those folks who have celiac that um, are non-adherent to a gluten-free diet, either have cross-contamination or, or um, inadvertent exposure. So you know, it doesn't mean that you can you you know take take this and go eat a pizza. That, that's not what this means. So it's a lot of education about that and truly how you're differentiated and why you're differentiated. And we're also the first therapeutic or or drug to make it to phase three. And not only are we the first to make it to phase three, the the people that are behind us are years behind us, at least two years behind us. So it's really a lot of education. So, you know, everybody knows what celiac is, but what's our approach? Why is our approach? The other thing that's important with sort of celiac, and I'll just just talk about that one for a second, is that most functional uh, GI diseases. Are are what you call differential diagnosis, functional GI diseases, or differential diagnosis. And basically, what a differential diagnosis is is that you eliminate everything else, and you end up with, let's say, IBS D diarrhea predominant, predominant or C constipation uh, predominant. So celiac is a functional GI disease, but there's a genetic linker, so there's a definitive genetic test. So that's probably where a lot of that education goes. And then for our, our short bowel syndrome uh, program, our, the way that we're approaching it is different than the current standard of care. Current standard of care is a GLP-2 that grows the villus architecture off the lumen of the GI tract with the idea of just picture. So just to take a step back, short bowel syndrome patients have approximately two meters or less of GI tract. So they have an inability to absorb nutrients. And if you have an inability to absorb nutrients, you're not, you're not long for the world, unfortunately. It's a horrible disease. And um, so they typically get a, a IV bag full of uh, what's called parenteral nutrition and parenteral support. All right, so this drug that was approved eight or nine years ago is a GLP-2. Uh, and the, the again, the approach is to build this thick shag carpet in the two meter, meters of your remaining GI tract to snag nutrients as you digest. All right. So that's, and then there's two other drugs in development that do that similar type of uh, process mechanistically. Our approach is totally different. So when your approach is totally different, there's a lot of education that goes from a regulatory standpoint. Well, if there's no regulatory predicate, are you guys nervous? Are you sure that you're going to, are you going to have the same endpoint? Well, our, our mechanistic approach is different. Why should we have the same endpoint? So our approach is simply slowing the transit time, the time in which you digest to excrete, which gives the ability of the body to naturally absorb nutrients. So that's mechanistically how we work. The other big advantage for us is our onset of action is hours to days. The the current standard of care takes up to six months. Can you imagine being a patient taking up to six months? And and the current standard of care is $40,000 per patient per month. So uh, we have a we have a you know we put together our target product profile. We have a lot of reasons to believe, uh, and I've been in the the biotech industry a long time, and I know everybody shows you their reasons to believe and discounts everybody else's. So I get that. So that's one of the things that we're very good with investors about. So I, I, I the way that I like to talk to investors and say, okay, here's our four big reasons to believe. Some of these are almost inarguable. Our onset of action—you you can't sort of debate what we are versus what the standard is. You—you you can't really debate uh, our administration will be at worst case twice a month um, and a fixed dose. The current standard of care is daily and a weight-based dosing. So it's, it'd be almost impossible to argue that our potential profile for those two isn't better. Right? I mean, it's almost potential. Our safety profile—the—the um, you know, the, we're a combination of this long-acting. Linker and exenotide. Exenotide has been used in millions of patients and has a very good safety profile. Uh, the GLP2 class has a neoplastic growth warning. So basically, what that means, it grows polyps. So could you imagine having only two meters of, of GI tract glass and it grows polyps? Not a good thing. So it'd be hard to argue that we don't have a safety advantage. So, and then efficacy will be proven through the, the rest of the development. So, you know, I try to put people in a situation where it's almost tough for them to, to say, yeah. Well, you know the proof will be put in the putting in the uh, the efficacy portion, but it'd be t- tough to argue the other three boxes.
1: What kind of partners are a good fit to Nine Meters BioPharma?
0: We are very active in business development um, in terms of looking for opportunities to bring in. That's always a, a, a that's always a balance between the opportunity and the cash burn associated with it, especially for a new company. So that's that part, and then for external partners. You, you, and I've been on both sides of the, this equation. You know, it, it's like, it, and I don't know if a better way to put this, it's almost like, you know, raising your kid and then giving your kid to somebody else to take them through the maturation process. So I, I heard Brent Saunders um, characterize drug development as, because a lot of people talk about their drugs, right? And he characterized, and I'm sure you know Brent Saunders, ex CEO of uh, Allergan, um, said, you know, until it's approved, it's all science. So could you imagine getting something all the way through an idea in somebody's head, phase one, phase two, phase three, manufacturing, all that stuff, and then handing it off to somebody else? Well, you want to make damn sure that whoever you're handing it to um, is going to maximize that return of the asset and do what's right for providers, payers, and most importantly, um, uh, patients. So uh, that's one. And then you have to have a really uh, good set of communication. It's almost like when you you start building a relationship with somebody. If there's questions right away, there's questions right away. That never gets better; it only gets worse, right? So, so, so it's it's, it's that. And then I, I also think you know we're not you know I think as a management team you have to make sure that you're you're not entrenched and you try to build value in an organization every every single day. And so I think that's the most important thing. You just every day at work you just try to build value.
1: What kind of people thrive at Nine Meters BioPharma? So,
0: and the the type of people that we really need. I learned this a long time ago too. You know, if you're in a big company, big pharma company, uh, name any of the you know top three to top five, everybody who works there, especially at some level, thinks that they're smarter than people that, that work for smaller companies. Everybody who's at a smaller company thinks they work exponentially harder than somebody at a bigger company. So it's almost a comical and it's like a joke, right? Yeah, I'm sure there's a whole cohort of people that work hard there, and there's a whole cohort of people that are smarter here. So, I said, but I think to answer your question, really, what you need is you—you—you you, you can't have people that are siloed. You at a at a biotech company that's new in their their age, you have to get you have to attract people that understand the interconnectivity, the interconnectivity, how everything's connected. You just have to. You can't have somebody that has no idea what other functions do, functions do and how that impacts the bigger picture. So you really have to understand the interconnectivity. And so, and I don't know what, to, at what point, you know, we'll we'll, we'll change the phenotype of the, the people that we're attracting, or we can, well, I'll never want people that don't understand the bigger picture, but it, it's really important that you understand the interconnectivity of all the different functions and how they interrelate.
1: When you're in the day-to-day deep world of details of making the company get helping the company get to the next step do you still find time to think about you know the premise like you know if i can do some good with this company i can really help people or do you have to sort of put that aside and say i know that that's there and i'll come to it but i can't be thinking about that right now
0: yeah i mean that's why you you, you do what you do like celiac disease could you imagine i mean it's when somebody has a, a gluten sensitivity and it's not controlled, you know, that's not like high blood pressure that sort of is in the back, right? The, the silent killer or something like that. Um, I mean, your quality of life for GI diseases is horrible. You're horrible. I mean, you're tethered to a toilet. I mean, that's basically what it is. You are tethered to a toilet. So whether it's alterative colitis or Crohn's disease, where you have bloody diarrhea 20 times a day, or Crohn's disease, or It's just, it's just a horrible, horrible quality of life.
1: How'd you come to the decision to place your headquarters in Raleigh, North Carolina?
0: We came down there. We, you know, GSK was down here. We had Research Triangle Park. So during the period in which we were building Salix, it became very clear. It was a phenomenal and is a phenomenal place to recruit to. It's a horrible place to recruit from because nobody wants to leave. So, so when I'm building nine meters, I knew because we at Salus was headquartered here, and I knew the quality of people that understand the GI therapeutic space and how easy it was to recruit people to come to Raleigh, should you want them to come to Raleigh. Uh, It was a no brainer.
1: How about on the investor side, there are people who believe you need to be in in the Bay Area, or you need to be in Cambridge, or wherever. It's easy for someone to hop off the plane or hop off the train. What's been your experience with that? Being in the Research Triangle?
0: Oh, uh, not an issue at all. There's, as I said, there's a there's a ton of biotech companies down here, uh, a ton of big companies in terms of GSK and, and others that are down here. Uh, we're an hour flight to New York, and well, hour and change to Chicago. Directs to London. Directs to. Paris, directs to San Francisco, directs to L.A. So, no, it's very, very, very easy. Being in Raleigh has been nothing but additive to the equation.
1: Is there any part of thought leadership that you're especially plugged into now?
0: I think probably one of the things that I I harp on a lot, I've had market access report up into me for uh, the last 25 years in any organization that I've been with. That's one of the functions that's always reported up into me. So w- when you, I try to be very pragmatic in, in my approach to everything, very common sense. Okay. So I, I, other than uh, very uh, uh, acute diseases, uh, acute allergic rhinitis, there's a lot of diseases that are prevalent over multiple, multiple, multiple years. So, however, when you look at the United States, and I, and I do, I'm a big fan of, of uh, employer-based insurance. I think that is the right way to go, Um, because I I, I think it just puts a competitive marketplace in place. And the the more competitive something is, the more evolution, appropriate uh, improvement will be. The crazy aspect of it is the contracts are year to year. How insane is that? Every single year, an employer renegotiates their contract with a payer. That's insanity when you think about it. Why doesn't why 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 isn't there some kind of and, you know there's a whole industry it's not even a cottage industry that is involved with connecting uh, insurers with employers and going through this yearly RFP process? So why don't we go? I think it's Switzerland that has this model where you're you know you sign up three to five years. It just makes more sense because what's happening is let's say you have somebody a, a I'm just bring this up an, ob- an obese patient. The patient uh, it qualifies for bariatric surgery. It's the right thing to do, and most employers and payers say, "Well, you know, it's going to be somebody else's patient next year." There's no long-term incentive, so we have to create long-term aligned incentives between insurers and employers. And I just think it would benefit everybody, everybody, because the average employee, you know, Steve's with—I forget what the stat is, but it's probably three to five years. I don't know what I don't know what COVID's done to that, but I think it used to be like three to five years, so shouldn't we align insurance to uh, align with employers for that same sort of length of time? I mean, how often do you change car insurance companies or homeowners insurance, right? I, I don't even remember the last time I changed my homeowners insurance or the car insurance, but damn health insurance seems like every other year. Every year we're changing it.
1: Thanks for making time to speak with me today, John.
0: Well, John, I definitely appreciate the opportunity to to go through my background and and my leadership traits and some of the background on the company. And hopefully you understand that we we truly do want to make a meaningful difference in the lives of patients suffering from debilitating GI diseases. And I can't thank you enough for the opportunity.
1: Thanks, John. Near the beginning of my conversation with John Temporato, he told me the subject matter experts in his company know a lot more about their areas than he does. But as John said, I think I'm pretty good at communicating a vision and getting people to understand how we're going to get there and why. Most importantly, why. If people know the whys, then it becomes not motivational, but inspirational. I don't know about you, but when I get the feeling a leader is trying hard to be motivational, I can't help but ask, what's in it for them? But when a leader involves me in a story of why, I feel invited to connect with something in my own life, and that can become inspirational. Most of us who work in the field would agree with John when he says, if you can't get inspired doing this type of job, I don't know what can inspire you. Because at the end of the path, you're making a meaningful difference in patients' lives. I'm John Cimbali. You're listening to BioBoss.